listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Bracken, Bracken, Bracken! Mm. Hello! Good morning. Before we get to you, I want to talk about us today. Me and you. I want to tell you that I feel like you and I had a breakthrough in our relationship this weekend. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought you were talking about one thing, and then I realized you were talking about another thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What do you think I'm about to say? I I accidentally told you I loved you. (laughs) (laughs) You told me you loved me. I was texting Bracken so proud for his race, and his response was, I love you. And I just melted. (laughs) And then you said, just kidding, it's a typo. Not just kidding. Explain yourself. I said that was supposed to say, I love that. But I stand by it. I did say I stand by it. But that was the first time I've I've used the word love with you. But it came out before I was ready for it to come out. And <laughs> this isn't the first time this has happened, Kirk. <laughs> so Lisa was just on talking all these fantastic things about me. Mm-hmm. I left that episode thinking, and I told her, I love how much you love me. However, you went so in on how incredible I am and how good looking I am that it's going to erode the audience's confidence in anything else you said because I'm not as good or good looking as you portrayed me to be and they know that and now they're not going to trust anything else you said on that episode. Uh Uh-huh. So I'm going (laughs) to add a little piece to that about love, about how I'm not that great of a person. The first girl I ever said I love you to and meant it was Lisa. Mm. But the first person I ever said I love you to was on accident. (laughs) I was in high school and she was a year older. I was a senior. She had graduated and gone off. She came back. We were hanging out all summer. And one night she said, I love you. And I said, I love you too. And went, (gasps) I was so programmed in my family. We tell each other, I love you every night before bed. And Mm -hmm. everyone says it to everyone. We just have a very like open about that. And I am so programmed to say, I love you too. After someone said it to me that I just said it to her and she just melted and was so happy that like she broke through. She knew I'd never said it to anyone and I was filled with such instant regret. Mm. And what can you say there? Oh, shoot. No, I don't. I'm sorry. Typo. So I did it again, but to you. That's what, yeah, that's what you did to me. But I do love you. You had no problem. I didn't love her. No problem retracting that statement. I retracted having said it, but not having felt it. Oh, I love you too, Bracken. What a nice moment for us. <laughs> it was a really sweet moment. Bracken's sort of blushing over there. If you guys can't see this. I was laying next to Lisa and I said, I just told Kirk I love him. She said, wow, you really, really are emotional after this race, huh? <laughs> oh, I thought that was so funny. All right. Well, let's get down to business here, Bracken. There's two things I found out this weekend that the running public audience wants from us. Two things. Okay. Very clear to me. One, 
They want more Q&A episodes and questions because I have been bombarded. We're, we might have a Q&A series last a year at this rate. We made a mistake. <laughs> we might have made a mistake. I think I have like 15 screenshots just that were sent to me, not to both of us at the same time. Correct. When we said we're going to go through these Q&As until they're done. We meant the questions we already have, but we opened up the floodgates. Well, I said, if you want your questions answered in this series, send them over if you have them. It was me. I said that during an episode. Oh, send them so to Kirk. Well, I got them. But anyways, so holy smokes, we're going to have to figure that one out. And the other thing that people won't stop asking me about is we got to talk about your race. Make sure you talk about Bracken's race on Training Tuesday. I can't wait to hear about Bracken's race. Did you see Bracken's race? I got so bombarded with Bracken talk this weekend. Really? Everybody is on the edge of their seat waiting to hear about the Michigan super champion Bracken Cracker. And I haven't talked to you yet, so I'm very excited about this. We texted, but you do your thing after I race, which is few and far between, which is you tell me you're proud of me, you tell me you're pumped up, and you say, I don't want to hear it now. I'm sorry. I want to hear it so bad, but I need to wait and hear it fresh on the podcast. Yep. And to be honest, I'm really torn because on OCR Discord, someone said, can't wait. This should make for a great intro to the episode. And some guy said, yeah, exactly. Right after Bracken says, listen, I don't want to make it about myself and 20 minutes later. <laughs> you know what? He's right. <laughs> so now do I prove him right or do I cut off my nose to spite my face? That's a weird saying. You prove him right by doubling down. Might as well make it 40 minutes, Bracken. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you think I can go 20? I'm going to go an hour 20. What was your response? You said, <laughs> we can't wait to talk about this Monday. I said, maybe we can touch upon it. <laughs> what was your response to that? And I said, let's make a whole episode about let's it. Let's make it the whole episode. Let's meet in the middle. You had told me that you were going to race and you were going to go to Michigan. You weren't really telling anybody about it. You just wanted to go get your feet wet at sort of a race that meant nothing to you. But uh, you knew that maybe some decent local guys would come out. You were hoping, actually, they would. Um, and more of this was just to get back and mm -hmm. compete before, let's say, some hybrid stuff you have coming up or whatever the next move is. And, in fact, I forgot about it. I don't even think I said, hey, go get it, man. I think it was so <laughs> off the radar that yeah. you were so casual about it. And then I opened up my DMs on Instagram on Saturday morning after getting out of the woods. I was bow hunting with Jess, and I was lit up. I was like, why do I have eight messages in my Instagram right now? I shouldn't have this. And everything was like, screenshot, screenshot, look at Bracken, da-da-da, and this. And then I was like, oh, no shit. And I started looking, and I was so pumped up. I was like, freaking, I had to go for a run. I had to do something. I was motivated and inspired. <laughs> and so, really, man, it felt like I won for some reason. I don't know why. must be this love. Mm -hmm. what we have for each other it's it is it's deep so tell me man tell me about it i gotta hear it all because this and then i'll shut up is sort of ceremonious in my eyes um because you could have went and cleaned the house or cleaned the floor with a bunch of let's say no names because some of these spartan races are watered down fields these this time of year and this year in general and luckily for you you had some competition and you went and you rose to the occasion. And you were doubting your fitness a little. You were coming around. And then obviously you had a good race. So now that I've set you up, let's hear about it. Well, I told you once before, I think, and I told Lisa during that there's a – Logan has run this race, Logan Broadbent, every year for the last few years that they've had the Michigan race. And there's a good chance he shows up. And she said, well, don't don't sell yourself short. 
which obviously was like the theme of her episode mm-hmm. for a while. And I said, I'm not, but realistically, we are on different planes of fitness right now. And I don't think I'll even race him. I'll let him do his thing. And going in, I knew there's a real chance he shows up and that he's not for me right now. And that's exactly what happened. I didn't race him. Okay. I raced him for 800 meters, just the last 800. He, he he was a minute, eight. he was like a minute something ahead by 5K. Oh, okay. I just let him do his thing. Um, I was racing second through fourth the entire time. And that got me back into things. The finish result was not the race. I led one step of the race. It was the last step. Mm-hmm. And, and he didn't race anyone for like four miles straight. So how did you charge home so hard? Where did that come from? Uh, my struggle is always getting to that point in a race. If I can get to the last 800, then I can make something out of it. And if I can get to the last 100, I really like my chances. And if I can get to the last, what it came down to, 30 meters, then I really, really like my chances. So that that's what happened is I just got to that point. But um, I guess to backtrack... It's only fair to Logan to say that 13 days earlier, he ran a 228 marathon. Yeah. He had a marathon in his legs. And not just a 228. He and I got to warm up together and chat a bit. He had an awesome experience in Chicago in that he went out to run like 540 to 550 pace at the beginning, feel his way into it like a marathon probably should be done and then see what happens. And he found himself in a group with Des Linden who had a lot of fanfare around her and she was trying to break the master's record. And he and some of the guys you're running with were just like, you know what? Screw it. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And they just went out running five thirties instead of five fifties. So he hung on and emptied the tank in PR'd by like seven minutes or five minutes. Like he thrashed himself in Chicago and I got him 13 days later. And then about a thousand meters in, he cracked his knee on a, on a log. Like there were felled trees everywhere in these fields and they would just materialize out of the dark at you. People were, were really good about yelling out like trunk or log or rock or tree. And then, but you wouldn't see it until you're about a stride away because you're trying to watch your feet and Anyway, there was a log that also had a branch protruding from it, and he he hit his knee on the on the branch. So he was running slower, hanging in it for a while. He didn't lead actually; some other guy was leading. And then during the sandbag carry, I I just wanted to feel it a little bit, so I I moved up on it, moved into first, and that kind of woke him up, and he just took off running after that. So from mile one to mile three, he put a minute on us. And was gone, Got and we it. didn't see him again. I didn't see him again probably until mile. You would see a headlamp like going over an obstacle in the distance and then start timing in your head. And he was consistently 45 to 60 seconds ahead of me the rest of that time. All right. So when did that change? How did that change? Uh, it changed because I failed Olympus. Okay. When we pulled into the parking lot, it was 37 degrees out. I scraped ice off our car that morning mm. to get to the venue. So it was cold. And it started raining like 10 minutes into the race. So it was probably like 38, 39 degrees by that point, raining. And it was a marshy area. It's like a wetland. So everything's muddy. Everything's wet. Every obstacle was difficult. Logan failed his spear throw during that time that he put a minute on us. Penalty loops were like 30 to 45 seconds, I would say. So they weren't real long. But uh, So he got ahead of us, failed his spear throw, and left the penalty loop before we got to the spear throw. Mm-hmm. That's how much he was outrunning us by. So then after that, we ran for a few miles, and then I failed Olympus. Everyone failed something 
at least the top five, I believe. Okay. And I got terrified because as I was coming back out of Olympus, out of the penalty loop, it was in the middle of the woods. It was pretty dense. I could see lights getting to Olympus, and I wasn't sure if anyone had passed me while I was on the loop. So we ran a really technical stretch next for probably, I don't know, a thousand meters. And I worked it really hard, like that desperation work where I might have got passed. I thought I was in second place, but now I might be third Mm -hmm. and two guys are coming in behind me. So I just worked hard on that next section. And I think I closed some ground through there. And that is your strength. You're a fantastic technical runner. That, that That was the key to this whole thing. This this course was like one-third bushwhacking, one-third pretty sweet trails, and one-third either gravel or actual paved like paths. Smooth, crushed gravel or actual asphalt. And every single time we hit asphalt or trail, he was like 20 to 30 seconds per mile faster than me. Mm. And so the, the technicality was the only thing that kept me in it. But So I worked really hard there to try to undo what I had just done on that obstacle, not knowing everyone was going to fail it behind me. Yep. And then we come around the corner and there, there's a section of beach running. You did Bender and I could see him running down the beach and he looked like he was running not very fast. I couldn't see him. I could just see his light bouncing like a quarter, mm-hmm. eh, 300 meters ahead of me. I was like, holy crap, he's dying. So I hammered down through the beach and I realized they took us out into the lake you're running like knee deep water. That's why he looks slow. <laughs> uh-huh. But it had me in that that momentum moving forward where I, I had started working harder. And so I decided, all right, push the water, got up onto the sand. I thought, well, sand running sucks for everyone. I'm going to push through here. And so came around the corner again, and I see his headlamp starting the box, which was the last grip-based obstacle. And he was probably 200 meters ahead of me. And I got to the base of the box as he got over it. Wow. So he was stuck. He got stuck there a little bit. Yeah, he got stuck on the box. And that that was that was how I got back into it. So I, I had been in charge mode, but it was charging away from third place. And that that shortened the gap enough that I saw his struggle. And the, I mean, it was frozen and really wet and the box is tough. And I'm like six inches taller than him. Mm-hmm. So I got over the box in like five seconds and he probably took 25 seconds on it. So I went into it 200 meters down and I came out probably 50 meters down. And then that's... That was all it took to to make it a race. So from that point in, that was like probably 800 meters from the finish. Suddenly we were racing for the first time. There's blood in the water. And when there's blood in the water, you become very dangerous. And uh, I imagine it played out much like that. He gave you hope. You stayed in it. You yeah. always said when you're in a fight or you have a battle or you get engaged in an actual race, typically you're able to access some fight. Would that be how it played out, would you say? Yeah, for sure. Because up until that point, I was running my best on the technical stuff. I was able, and that's, I mean, I've talked about it on here. I'm doing leg builder work for me, which is a ton of lunging. I'm doing one uphill threshold work a week, and I'm running twice on the most technical rocky terrain I can find. Creek bed running up and down ravines with just roots and rocks. And that was over 30% of the race. So I had been running well on that. But every time I got on the flats, I was, my line was very small. Mm-hmm. Like I could run right around threshold. And if I crossed over at all, I got like nauseous instantly. But this allowed me to skip past that. As soon as there's 800 meters to go, like I could switch from that stride from riding threshold to like 3K or miles, or, you know, whatever that is, where who, at that point, it's it feels horrible, but you know you only have to do it for a few minutes. It was that in-between that was sapping me throughout the race on the flats. I just couldn't 
Like I couldn't run 10K pace. Mm. I could run half marathon pace. And at the end, I could run 5K or mile, but that in between wasn't accessible. So I got to skip that then. 800 meters to go. I was going through Strava last night. There was a stretch of running that we hit some flats and I was like 508, 501, holding Mm. five O's, where I was struggling with 530s in the middle of the race. Wow. Walk me through the last minute. The last minute. Well, we hit hit a, coming off of that flat terrain, we hit another like just 50 meters of swamp. I took like two seconds there. And then we did A-frame. And it was a really loose A-frame. So I took like two seconds there, two seconds down the backside. Then we did rolling mud and I probably took two more seconds. And then we got to slip dunk wall, slip wall was the last obstacle. I made up a little time there, jumped off it 10 feet behind him and we had 30 meters to the finish. And then it was just a, a sprint. And throughout this time, I was accelerating. And like, if there was a time for the marathon to hit your legs, it's through a swamp, through rolling mud, through A-frame, like all those areas that you have to really reach your legs out and engage all of it. I was fresh enough and he was probably at his most depleted. And then it came down to a sprint the last 30 meters. And How far before the finish line did you pass Logan? I caught him one stride before and he like lunged dove and I leaned. It was that close, huh? It was Within feet. Within feet. Yeah. They had that thing where there's two like timing mat areas 20 feet apart. Yeah. And he was a stride ahead of me at the first one. And I leaned at this at this which was dumb i leaned which put my timing chip behind right, me right 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 it's just it's ingrained in me to lean but so it was again i want to reiterate i'm not selling myself short i'm not degrading my performance but he was 13 days post pavement marathon and that's where it's going to hit you well you have firmly said you believe that when you beat somebody you also inherit uh all of their accomplishments I believe is how it goes. Mm-hmm. So that means you're That's now two, absolutely right. You're a two twenty eight marathoner. You're a Spartan Race World Champion. Um, you're an Ironman World Champion. Mm-hmm. Um, you've pretty much done it all at this point. If we're going to go off of that logic, yeah, I'm I'm probably the greatest athlete to ever live. Yeah, obviously. Is there any video <laughs> footage of this out there? I don't know. I haven't seen any. I mean, the problem is it was dark. Like there's there's a picture that I put on my Instagram of me going over the A frame where the sunrise is happening. And that was, Hmm. that was 30 seconds before the finish line. So that's the lightest it was during the day. So I don't think people were out doing much in terms of videography. Okay. But it was so nice to be in a battle. Yeah. It, it, well, it, it gives you the opportunity to find out about yourself is what it does. Yeah. You're going to learn where you're really at. Um, I think this is a testament to your athleticism and, uh, your investment in the sport for years early on, because Logan has been racing. Of course, he has a road focus recently with the Chicago Marathon, but that dude's raced Mm -hmm. six times the amount of Spartan races you've raced in the last handful of years, if not more. So he should be very well versed in transitions and obstacles and navigating terrain, things like that. And he's a good technical runner. I've raced against him. He's not a bad technical runner by any means. He's got very good turnover. And so... You know, yeah, the fact that you just went right back in there and actually took care of business, made up time on the actual transitions, obstacles, tightening up those gaps on all of those things is just pretty impressive because you've raced so much less than he has, especially in recent years. So it's just a testament, I think, to your athleticism and then your, I don't know, cerebral approach to being on an obstacle course. Like, what do you, what do you credit the fact that you were able to 
let's not talk about Chicago Marathon or fatigue in his legs or whatever. Like just from the course itself, like what do you credit that to? Nickel and diming him all the way back till you passed him. Yeah, I mean he he had the best running there. If you look at the segments, there was three sectors on course. And in the first sector, including his miss spear, and I made mine. So with his penalty loop, he put, I want to say a minute eight on me through 2.75 miles. Mm. The next sector was 1.45 and he put eight seconds on me and that included my Olympus failure. So when we got to the second half or the middle of the course, which was a lot of sloppy running and a lot of really wet obstacles, I was able to do the type of obstacle racing that I did early on. Like this was a Midwest race. It was in the thirties. It was raining. It was muddy. I'm not uh, an obstacle like specialist. I'm an obstacle survivor. I'd like to think that if all of us get there frozen and cold, I'll find a way through an obstacle <laughs> other than I slept off Olympus. Mm-hmm. But that's what he had to do too. He is dynamic on obstacles. He's been on Ninja Warrior and been successful. He can launch, fly, swing, release. He can do things I can't, but the weather was a rev limiter. No one could leap onto the obstacle because you had to go up and touch it just to feel, is this obstacle wet or is it caked with dirt and now wet and turned into mud? Like the the rings, Z-Wall, everything was coated with mud. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they just brought you stuff or if they put dirt on there to be funny, but some obstacles were just covered in mud. Uh, Twister I got to, I reached up to grab it and realized, I don't think I can do this. Hmm. It was so, the metal was so cold and it was so wet that it was just really difficult. So it removed one of his greatest strengths, which is being absolutely dynamic on obstacles. So we had to use the same strategy going through it. Mm-hmm. And since he usually flies through those obstacles, even though he's raced more than me, I've probably done slow and monotonous rigs and obstacles more than he has, since that's what most of the Midwest races were for me. So I was kind of in my uh, my discomfort zone, and he wasn't able to use. Normally, if we go through Twister, he's going to put five to ten seconds on me. But here, I'm six inches taller, so I don't end on like the monkey bars and the rigs and stuff. I don't have to extend away from my center mass as much to stay clung up tight and squeezing on these obstacles. And I probably have like more crush power than he has. He has better grip endurance than me, but I can probably crush a little stronger. So I probably have to use a little less to stay on these. So I think I nickeled and dimed just being able to stay in my comfort zone and him not Mm -hmm. being able to use the gifts that he would normally bring to that course. I think that's where it started. Yeah, that makes sense. I can follow that logic. I I think that's probably fairly accurate. If you guys ran a 10K, let's say on the cleanest portion of terrain there, not the not the road, mm-hmm. but let's say gravel or whatever it was, how much do you think you would have been beaten by in a in a six mile race? I want what I'm trying to get at is how much does technical terrain and then transitions and obstacles factor in for two you to in three this minutes? Race? I would guess. So you think I'll you would have lost by minutes. 30, 30 seconds a mile, twenty to thirty seconds a mile slower if it was clean running and yeah. every you made up that much time in the technicality and the obstacle portion. Yeah, well, he just ran five thirty nine for a marathon, so his marathon is his two and a half hour running pace is five thirty nine. I would say that's like ambitious for me for threshold running, which for me is about 10 to 15K. Mm -hmm. So he's like two deviations faster on running, probably down to about a 10K. And then at 5K, he's probably one deviation. Then we're probably even through 3K and I might have an edge in a mile. But so for a 10K distance, I would say it's safe that he's 20 seconds per mile faster, could be 30. 
which that's two to three minutes. But like technical terrain, especially in the dark, it's just a rev limiter. Right. Like, it doesn't matter how fit you are. You can't stride out and you can't pop off the ground when you're running through a swamp. Yep. So again, it just, he brought some skills to the table that the course didn't allow him to use. So that mm. it just allowed me to hang around a little more. And I certainly didn't over rev those first 5K. Right. I had Palmerton in my, in my head this whole time. A, he was dynamic in Palmerton. <laughs> He was the number one seed going through to round two. I really, really, really struggled, and I fell apart in the second half of each lap, and I was a little apprehensive about that. And so the whole first 5K, it was when in doubt, back off a notch and try to take it back somewhere else. Hmm. He was The marathon was catching up to him as the race went on, and I was gaining speed as the race went on. Yeah, The marathon was catching up to him as the race went on, and you were catching up to him as the race went on i suppose so tell me this what does it tell you about your fitness what did you learn um does this mean anything in the grand scheme of things to you does it not uh talk me through that i think what's and i I talk about this with people i work with but it's really important not to let the finish cloud what happened because if you took a snapshot at any point along the way until 800 meters to go that was a second place race and i'm very happy with that and i have some some clear path on what to do next with my fitness if you ask me at the finish line, the moment I crossed it, I would have been like, I'm the greatest person that ever ran the sport. And then 15 minutes later, uh-huh. and the adrenaline dropped down. I'd realize, listen, if he and I run this race 10 times on 10 different courses, I win this one and he beats me handily on nine other. I'm, I'm aware of that. I had the weather. I had the terrain. I had the dark. I had all, and the box. All these things conspired against him and all helped me use pieces that I have. So if my fitness felt good, it didn't feel like I was missing. I'm and as I should be, I, I can run fairly well, just right around threshold right now, but it needs to be faster. But my full body functional fitness, which is something I talked about after Palmerton getting up and down off the ground, everything tired me out more than it should have. Yep. Everything tired me out less than I thought it was going to during the race. So that was very, very encouraging. Um, I had a decent bar wire crawl. I had a pretty decent sandbag carry. That was on concrete, but the bucket carry was probably the the worst terrain bucket carry I've ever done. Not the steepest, but it was just a swamp for a lot of it, and it felt good, and getting up and over the obstacles didn't tax me like they did in Palmerton. So it was there was a lot of positives for it. And the most important thing is that I leave for the first time in a long time out of a race. Very healthy and able to start training more mm-hmm. if I want to, rather than having to take a step back. And also it it got that taste of Palmerton out of my mouth. That Palmerton ate at me. I talked about it openly one time afterwards on the podcast about how frustrating it was and how I didn't learn what I wanted to learn, but some signs were positive, some were really negative. It was nice to just get that out of my system. I know I'm not the best in the sport anymore. I know I never will be the best in the sport anymore, but I know that I also wasn't the 22nd best person there. Right. Like I know I'm not a, a 22nd ranked person in the U.S. Even though my it would say I am, I, I just knew that wasn't true. And it was it was good to just get that, <laughs> that in the past, move on from that. Like I'm not the first ranked person, even if the race said I, I beat Logan. I know that I'm not better than him, but I know I'm not the 22nd either. And mm-hmm. it was nice to get clarity on on that yeah i'm tracking well people have a lot of, you know short-term memories so what have you done for me lately and lately you've done right you've done something pretty good 
for me. So I think people forget about Palmerton. I do already, actually, anyways. And you had, what, three months, I believe, of training between Palmerton and now. And I think you've gone back to, like, I don't know if I want to say the basics. Absolutely the basics. But I feel like that's the sentiment I get from your training in the last few months is you stopped being cute. Yeah. You stopped building out these year-long progressions. You just said, you know what, I'm going to check the boxes and they may not be romantic looking and they may not be novel but i'm going to just do the simple things and the basic things and i'm going to do them consistently instead of deviating grandeur in your training block and and of course there's some of that because it's you you can't help yourself but would you agree that you just though you just dumbed it down you simplified things non-sexy yeah i mean I, i did the exercise i did with my two aging athletes aging in quotes, they're still monsters. Like what keeps my body feeling good? What, when I don't do it causes something to go wrong. And then what do I enjoy doing and how can I do those three things every single week? I'm just doing the same really simple routine for several weeks in a row and staying away from anything sexy. Yeah. One grain of sand at a time. And it's sustainable. Yep. Okay. So, um, then I guess my final question for you is, uh, what is this? Does this mean anything moving forward to you? Does this change anything going and having a good race? Like the plan is the plan. This doesn't cause you to, I don't know, want to go to Abu Dhabi, for example. No, no. The, I mean, that's where I get into trouble. The reason I was able to have any amount of success this weekend is because I didn't deviate from what should be done. And the worst thing I could do is is, is read too far into it. Yep. Like Logan's a monster and getting a win over him could very quickly lead you to believe that you are better than you are. I wrote down notes as soon as possible right after this race to remind me what went well and to remind me to look at this with correct perspective. Mm-hmm. Again, if he and I move on to any other course than that, that is not the result and I need to remember that. But I also need to remember that there's hope. That on the right course, that can happen. And if fitness continues to build, maybe it can happen on a so-so course. And if it continues to build, maybe it can happen on a bad course for me. Mm-hmm. That progression now has hope there again. It's, it's been very hard not to let the doubt creep in that, you know, maybe it's just done. Maybe you don't ever get back to it. I'm a dreamer and a believer, so I always thought I could, but doubt seeps in. So even if it took the perfect storm for it to work... It still worked once mm-hmm. without everything having to be perfect in training. So there's hope moving forward, but it's like a, a cautionary hope. Don't don't get too far into this. We all know that that's not the result isn't what the race was until 800 to go. So just stick to the plan. Keep building more and more and more so that you can cut those 20 to 30 seconds off your 10K pace that you need to. And by this point next year, you can go to Abu Dhabi or wherever if you're able to stay healthy that whole time. Well, if you dumb it down or simplify it, much like you've done your training, is this a check mark in the positive or the negative column? Obviously, this is a check mark in the positive column. And for sure. I think everybody's secretly, see, not even secretly, rooting for you, man. They, you know, our listeners, uh, who I am super thankful for uh, and very appreciative of, much like you are, have you know, been along with you on this journey. And yes, it's the dumb Michigan super. That means absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things. And you know what? 
I went down to Florida and beat Alvaro Vasquez in my first race back after recommitting to, let's say, training and health. Mm-hmm. And it meant absolutely nothing to everybody else. And for me, it, it was the it was the start of the beginning, we'll call it again. Right. It was like, all right. Yeah. Like this is this means something to me. Doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things, but it means something to me. And that's what all that matters. Right. And that is that is just that one igniter that right. continues to build that fire. And so, like, whether it's a big race, small race, whether your competition was tired or not, this just pushes the ball maybe over the crest of the hill for the first time in possibly years. Yeah. And so I just think it's fantastic. And I think everybody listening is very happy to see that result pop through. So congratulations, sir. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're right. Like sometimes hope is the only difference. Yep. During the race, without the box there and hearing him grunting and seeing the time change between us, I wouldn't have run that next stretch at five-minute pace. I was capable of doing it either way, but suddenly the hope of catching him allowed me to do it. Allowed me to do the thing that I probably should have done either way, but didn't know was there. And that's kind of the way I feel after this race. Even if that race isn't all that it may look like, it tells me there's hope. And maybe now I can just, that's that thing that gets you towards going from, we'll see to, I believe now. Yeah. Like this, there really is light here. Maybe I can continue this. The, The hope alone, if nothing else. I mean, the experience was awesome. It was so cool to do, but the hope alone is worth it. Well, and I think it's a testament to stop reaching for things. And I know that sounds crazy to say, because, but it's a testament to what you don't need to reach every time you put your running shoes on in training. You don't need to reach every time you load up the barbell for back squats. You don't need to reach every time a training session pops up. You need to show up and take what your body and mind give to you that day and just do that repeatedly, consistently. And when you don't reach every day, you're less likely to get hurt, you're less likely to burn out, and you're more likely to just one grain of sand it at a time, right? And eventually there's an anthill, and that anthill turns into a mountain, and that is fitness, and that's how it builds. And so instead of reaching for a race three weeks away, you just put one grain of sand in per day, and whether that hill amasses in three months or three years, it doesn't matter, but it's still going the right direction. And I think people far too often reach too much on the day-to-day. You can dream all you want, but you still got to do one grain of sand at a time. And so I think it's a testament. You haven't reached for anything lately. And I'm not discrediting your hard work because you have been. You've simply just been doing the things. And so I just think that is the way for most people. It's the way. Yeah. It's how I got fit these last couple of years. Yeah. You just have to stack things. Stack. Once they start stacking up, they're worth more together than the individual pieces on its own. Yes. I did nine weeks prior to this block and I averaged 17 and a half miles per week in one quality session per week. And then for the past five weeks, I've averaged 24 and a half miles per week with three quality sessions, but two of them are lunger machine based. And I've just added technical running invert. Those are unimpressive things by almost anyone's standards. But what it added up to was 14 weeks of incrementally building up resistance to impact resilience to technical terrain and building my engine up yep and what have i done in the past i did a nine-week crash course for for jacksonville one year got what i felt was legitimately fast with no staying power and i tore my calf and then i did a quick turnaround crash course for palmerton and i got there and with my lower back and calf had to baby every descent and save it for the final because i didn't have enough impact resistance to get 
to the final having descended all day long. Like, yeah, could I have done more and been more fit? Yes, but I might not have been available. So you're just so right that just without like to do, I've been doing the 80, I mean, volume wise, I'm doing 50%, 24 and a half miles per week is about 50%, maybe 45% of what a decent vert based volume approach for me would be. But intensity wise, I'm doing about 80% of what I would normally do, but it kept me available. The best ability is availability. As you say, you know what the best part though, of the whole weekend was, Hmm. or the best part of the whole race day was there's this guy that I didn't recognize and it was hard to recognize almost anyone because it was dark, but he passed me on the rig. Then on the next run section, I caught up to him and then he was pushing through the next and he passed me up a hill and I caught him down. And at one point I'm just like, hey, that was a tough obstacle or something. He said, yeah, good to see you out here, Bracken. And I said, what's your name? He said, Adam Baylor. Hmm. Guy's on our training plan. Heck yeah, he is. He's on our running public training peaks training plan. And he and I are out here on course having a conversation in between gasps in the middle of a race in the middle of the dark, just going at it. I love that. He goes, I've I never had a consistent training plan before. I love it. <laughs> and he takes a few breaths and I, I was like, this is so cool. It's great to meet you. And we're running together like three miles into this super. It was just such a rewarding. It was like the perfect culmination of our podcast, the coaching and racing all in one moment. Hmm. I'm running, filling my cup. But the thing I do on the side that fills my cup filled his cup. And now we're here filling our cups together. It sounds cheesy, but it was just like a perfect moment in time right out there on court. So Adam, congratulations. That was a fantastic race. And I was, it was really nice to see you out there. Two guys, one cup, so to speak. One could say. That's, that'll be the episode title. Somebody could say that. Uh, you know, and Adam, um, you're lucky you didn't beat Bracken because, um, he would have kicked you off the training plan. Suddenly your training peaks wouldn't have uploaded anymore. And you would have been like, this doesn't make sense. Why isn't it working? And then be like, well, you beat me and now you're fired. So good job. Thanks for letting, uh, Bracken beat you. You're and you're welcome as well. It's kind of him. Yeah. All right, man. Um, so here's, here's what I think we should do. Um, and by the way, I had a fantastic time talking to your wife without you last week. (laughs) It was great. <laughs> there are very few men that I would just comfortably hear that statement from. Yeah, I had a, I interviewed uh, Lisa Bracken's wife last week, and we got to know Bracken through Lisa's lens, and it was a nice conversation. The two hours went by really quickly. She was a great sport, very open, and uh, loves you a lot, I think. Not as much as I do, but close. And um, we had a nice conversation. So if you haven't listened to it, it's, I tried to get to know Bracken through Lisa in last week's episode. So I enjoyed talking to her without you. Um, so I think this, I'm adamant about keeping these training Tuesdays somewhat close to an hour, but okay. I think we got it. We got it. We got to stick to our guns, but we can squeeze in a few Q and A's still. Cause we might as well, unless you have another idea here. I, I have screenshots sitting right here. Let's, let's do like five and call it a day. Okay. And guess what? OCR Discord, we are 45 minutes in and we just stopped talking about me. And I might bring it back to me again. 20 minutes. Have you learned nothing? I knew you had 40 minutes in you. All right. Well, do you want to kick off this train? It's kind of your week, your show. Okay. Let's see here. Question for a future Q&A. Also, I think they message me now when they don't want their name said. (laughs) said, hey, 
I or they'll be like, hey, I really agree. I don't want my name said. And then they move forward. Okay. This is not one of them, but it just made me think of that. I heard on a podcast recently, a podcast, not this one. I got two messages this last week that said I'm Team Kirk. I, I like to hear my name. So just saying. Go ahead. I mean, I'm Team Kirk. Okay. Give that's me right. the attention. Yep. I heard an athlete say that the work required to be a world champion is analogous to addiction. Do you guys think that is largely true in high-end running? If so, is there a cultural element to it, such as American or Western athletes being particularly prone to these extremes? And also, why does OCR seem like an outlier where you have family men like Hobie or Cody or people in healthy relationships like Lindsey Webster winning world championships? What is it about OCR that the addictive athletes aren't necessarily the best? Hmm. Good question. Yeah. I have some strong feelings about this. Um, you know, there's some truth to that. I think a large majority, like when you use the word addiction, that also means that it's potentially, I, in my eyes, potentially destructive for other areas of your life, right? Or that area specifically. Yeah. Um, I'm addicted to working out. Well, that's fantastic. But how does your, do your kids feel about that or your wife? at home or your relationships or your, you know, all those other things, the selfish nature of your daily life, what suffers because of your addiction is what I'm getting at. And so I think, I think I agree with the fact that at the very top end, the world record holders, there's probably is that word could be synonymous with, I don't know, high performers because something probably does suffer for most of them um, as a byproduct of their addiction to training, we will call it and success, right? At what cost? So I don't think it's that far off. Do I think it's perfect? Mm -hmm. No. I think, and then the floor is yours, that a lot of times in OCR, we are very lucky that the mixed modality and skill set required allows us to diversify. You can't, I mean, maybe you can be addicted to every substance known to man, but it's very difficult to be. And so an addiction to one particular avenue, let's say you're running in OCR, maybe could be the most likely culprit or lowest hanging fruit to be addicted to. But there's so many things that like you can justify anything going for a hike with a backpack on going to do pull-ups at the gym, putting your kid and carrying them around at the zoo because, Hey, I got to carry a bucket during a race. And I think it leads us to more balanced approach. And then that bleeds maybe into life and our performances. And so um, I think it just sets itself up to be maybe a little more friendly that way. You can go ahead. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I don't think, though, that addiction is the right word. I think obsession is the right word Mm -hmm. because we've known world champs. We've known some world record holders. We've seen national champs. Uh, I would say the majority of them haven't been addicted to training. They're obsessed with winning. They're obsessed with being the best. They're obsessed with people knowing they're the best. I wouldn't say their addiction, though, is to training. I think that actually happens more in the the weekend warrior or the the open waivers we call it i think that addiction happens more because it's more correlated to your daily life right you get your your endorphins from that where because winning is not an option for most people they get their jollies off of the act of performing the workout so i think the obsessions at the top i also firmly believe that many times and i'm not calling out whatever athlete went on the podcast and said this because i don't know the context but oftentimes people who are doing a certain thing like to grow the narrative around what they're doing because it gives them permission to do what they're doing. So to say, to be a world champion, you must have an addiction to this. Oftentimes it's because that person has 
an unhealthy relationship with how they're approaching things, and they want everyone else to get on board with that. I don't believe it's necessary, especially in endurance sports. We're not a sport that you can put more than 15 to 20 hours in without it being like destructive to you physically. And so you don't need to be addicted to put in 15 hours a week, especially if you don't have a job, which most people who are world champions don't have. So that that's kind of where I stand on that. I think it's over glamorized. So changing the word. The word addiction is the wrong word. Yeah, obsession. obsession. Obsession would be more appropriate, which I agree with you. I was trying to make the addiction word work. Obsession's far more appropriate. Yeah. yeah. But to to talk about the OCR version of this, I think there are two things about this that are true. The first is that we are an un explored sport where it is filling out in terms of the talent and dedication in it, but it is not anywhere near as densely populated as marathon or even trail running or track or triathlon. And so you can have all sorts of training win because you can just get away with that. Like back when Roger Bannister was trying to break four, all the top guys trying to break four were doing different things to try to do it. Some are running 15 miles a week. Some are running 50 miles a week. Some are doing four sessions of quality. Some were doing no sessions of quality. Like it didn't matter because everyone was pretty good, but you didn't have a thousand great people all trying it. That's what defines how you have to train for a sport is how good everyone else is in it. So about maybe three or four years ago, Hunter McIntyre said something to me. He said, the only people in this sport who are truly training like professional athletes are myself, the Atkins family, and Johnny Lunalima. Now, I'm sure he left some people off that list or wasn't aware of some of them, but his point was pretty valid that the only people dedicating all their hours to training 15 to 20 hours a week were were people like that. The rest of the people got away without having to do that. And you can't get away with that in fully established sports. Um, and then to speak to the healthiness of relationships, part of the reason Ryan and Lindsay have a healthy relationship is they're both doing the same thing. Like would Lindsay's husband support her the same way if he worked a nine to five and she was always gone playing in the woods? Or would Ryan's relationship be as happy if Lindsay wasn't an athlete and was trying to run the bakery full-time and never was a, an athlete and he was gone like ice climbing and biking and constantly climbing mountains and doing his 20 to 30 hours of activity a week like i don't think it would be but they have each other and they have a perfect mesh in that so those are all my thoughts on this <laughs> well yeah things are aligned nicely for some of those that stand out in our sport right it's the coming together of the right people enjoying the right things and choosing the life that they live. And you, you know, you go spend a day in the shoes. Let's think of the past world championships. Let's keep Ryan Atkins out of it. Um, Robert Killian, Hobie Call, uh, you could use Cody Moat, maybe John Albin. He's a full-time athlete now, so harder to be part of the equation. But, um, you know, Cody Moat's, you know, 3.30 or 4 a.m. alarms, managing his life. Mm -hmm putting the shoes on when he's dog tired, getting home and probably having a hard time keeping his eyes open to spend 30 minutes with his kids and his wife before crashing at 8 p.m. because he's exhausted. Cody or Hobie Call taking naps on his lunch hour instead of, I don't know, eating and doing something else the entire time because that was required. There's still a lot of fringe behaviors going on with these successful humans that aren't very glorious mm -hmm. from the outside. You can look at it and say, oh, they strike a great life balance and somehow they pull it all off. But I bet if you asked them how they felt about it, I guarantee you they say they feel like they're falling short in many areas because of their dedication to their training. 
And from the outside, it can look really rose-tinted, but I think if you are those athletes living it, there are lots of sacrifices for their obsession, and people still pay the price in some capacity for their pursuits. I would put money on it. Yeah. So I don't think it's perfect for anybody. No. That's it. And even look at Hobie. Hobie was trying to make the Olympic trials, did it, and didn't have any success there, but he was running 90 to 120 miles per week. He gets into OCR and started running three to four times per week strength training four times per week. He was running like five hours per week. And he was the greatest thing the sport had ever seen. You just can't get away. As great as he was, he couldn't get away with that if all the East Africans were here. <laughs> it's, just, it's just not going to happen. So uh, the obsession was there, but it wasn't the same type of obsession that you would have to have to like break 205 in a marathon. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to add to that? No, just drive home the fact that you have permission not to be addicted to yep. training yep. and you can still hit your ceiling or come darn close to it. Hmm. Um, we're going to do one more question. That's it. Okay. That's what I'm kind of, okay. Um, okay. Let me see here. Uh, Brian Bork. Hi, Bracken and Kirk. You might have this one screenshot as well. I think he emailed us both. So you might want to nix this off your list. Um, he kind of fluffs up fluffs us up a little bit, says some nice things. Thank you, Brian. And then he says, I have a question that I've looked into a little over the years, but I've never really found a great answer, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it. I'm training to run my first 100-miler next year, the QMT 100, and I do the majority of my training in the late evening due to life circumstances. I'm a father of two young boys, which keeps me very busy in the mornings and evening. I actually prefer running at night, especially in the winter with nice snow coverage on the ground, so I'm not bothered by the late evening running but I have struggled with post-workout nutrition. My question is regarding refueling after performing easy runs and workouts in the late evening. I typically finish around 9 or 10 p.m., and I am in, and I am in bed around 11 or 12. Any thoughts on what would be a good approach to post-workout nutrition after these workouts? Greatly appreciate any wisdom and advice. Do you do this ever? Do you do late-night workouts? Rarely, and I'm crabby about it when I do. Rarely. I used to more years ago, but not recently. How about you? Well, I'm a night owl by nature, so I've done this for years. <laughs> Kids dulled my ability to stay awake that long, but when I do stay awake that long, I have great workouts. Okay. I love it. But the key is, the key is you have to be already ahead of your nutrition when the workout starts. And I don't mean by fueling already necessarily, but you have to have your nutrition already set. So when I'm doing this, Lisa just talked about it. I made dinner the other night and then I went and worked out while they, while they ate, which I don't love doing because I think that's a good time with family around the dinner table, but it, it was what it was. But I had food waiting for when I got done. The moment I stopped sweating, I was already eating. And if it's not that, then it's making a smoothie right ahead of the workout or the moment I finish, but already having the ingredients like parceled out and sitting there. The longer you fin you sit after finishing the workout, the more you're heading towards the, I'm just going to wind up in bed, or I'm going to grab like a candy bar or a handful of chips or, you know, something non-essential, but something that's just comforting. So having something ready that you can just grab afterwards is fantastic to do. But Easy work, you don't need that much after. You can probably drink your calories. You can probably have your protein shake and be fine. But making a sandwich beforehand or putting together a little yogurt bowl with granola and fruit and stuff, just have it sitting there in the fridge, finish up. As you're sitting there, stopping sweating, get it down and you're done. Uh, it's the quality sessions that are harder. But that, again, you just have to get ahead of it. And then you wake up and you get back on the fueling train. You have to become a morning eater. Not everyone is, but 
if you go to bed after a quality workout, having taken just, if you just drink your protein shake, you know, load it up, get a couple hundred calories and go to sleep, you're going to be okay, but you got to wake up and eat right away. My assumption is this gentleman's eating dinner with the family. First, I'm a, that's an assumption I'm having. Uh, I assume you are thinking the same thing with your, based on your answer. You're assuming dinner is being eaten. Uh, I wasn't assuming anything was happening. Saying whether you did or didn't, get the bare minimum in afterwards and then get to bed. Well, to me, it makes a big difference if you've eaten dinner before or not. To me, it makes a huge difference. I mean, I... It does. Great. But that's where, that's why I said the breakfast part. Yeah. I mean, for me, I don't want stuff immediately afterwards. I assume you had just stopped sweating and you started eating. Like, did you even want it? I mean, or did you eat it because you knew you had to? You know, there's some questions in there. Yeah, I had to. Okay. And I have no problem eating a full meal and going right to bed. My schedule forces me to do that quite a bit. I don't get home till 730. Mm-hmm. We might eat at 8. And then it's like, shit, I got to get up at 5 or 4, 445. Like, I eat. We're, we're sitting at the table. It's 830. I'm like, oh, should we clean up and go to bed? And we do that. We do that often. And so I think it's more like chill after the workout. Let your appetite come back. And if it's not until... 10 o'clock or 10 30 great and then have something prepared like you said but it's a mix of carbs and protein like i think you should try to strike a balance whatever you do make sure you're replenishing on both accounts especially with you know six to nine hours of sleep where you're not going to be fueling so get the mix you need them both in conjunction so just whatever you choose just make sure you're checking both boxes um that's what i would prioritize i used to play soccer and our games were anywhere between 7.30 and midnight start times in adult league uh, on Tuesday and Sunday nights. And I did that all the way until I found OCR. And so I would sometimes get home at 2 a.m. after a midnight soccer game. And I never ate before 10 p.m., even after a 7.30 game. And it was the same thing. And I think it's just you just got to eat. Just eat. Just eat like a meal. And if not, at least have something mm-hmm. that, so you know you're going to sleep well. I can't sleep well if I'm running empty and my stomach's a little gurgly. So um, I don't know if that was helpful or not. But. I go to bed with a full stomach very often. I don't feel one ounce of guilt about it, and maybe that's not you, but um, I hate shoving food down my throat when I'm not ready for it. It's not satisfying to eat until I'm actually hungry. I don't enjoy eating for the sake of eating, but when I want it, then it's – I want it. I don't know. That probably wasn't helpful, but <laughs> – I think it's important to realize that you can have grace with this. This, if, if you're doing aerobic, easy efforts, and you go to bed without feeling great – you have that there's a whole school of thought which is train low race high mm-hmm. like there are there's a whole school of people who intentionally miss their eating window after to keep their system not topped off and then as they get within like 7 to 14 days of their race they start topping off and they get like the super compensation from it there's a whole school of of thought out there about eating windows and running while fasted and not eating not eating after 3 p.m or whatever it is 6 p.m for some people so Mm. other people are doing this intentionally and using it as a performance enhancer in their mind so like there there's wiggle room there's grace here the key sessions are the ones that deplete you you have to replenish i agree that's the big key you don't have to get it right 100% of the time, but if you're going to get it right, get it right 100% of the time on your big sessions. I had an athlete, and I'm not condoning what she did, if I'm being honest, but she wanted to trim up about 20 pounds of weight she believed she had to lose. This is a, a years ago. And I wasn't going to – I mean, if that's what you believed, then great. I'm going to support you. And she fell into this camp where she would work out after work, 
she had a busy job, a corporate job, and sometimes she wouldn't get to her workouts till seven, eight, nine at night, just like this gentleman. She was single at the time, no kids, no husband, um, working her butt off for corporate America. And she would hit her training late. And she said, I feel my best when I go to bed hungry and I lose weight this way. And her running metrics only went one direction as we worked together, better. She lost the weight she wanted to lose. Her running metrics were improving and she she ate breakfast right away off getting up. Don't worry, she always did that, but she preferred to do it that way. And I saw no detriment to her performance and felt like she was eating enough throughout the day. She just didn't eat after her workout. And she got faster and faster. We were training for a marathon. And I don't know how that panned out long-term, but things look pretty good. Her body was used to it, can get used to anything. And she got up and ate breakfast in the morning and never ate anything after her sessions. Hard, easy, didn't matter. Um, so who knows is what I'm getting at, just to muddy the waters even more and be less helpful than I previously was. I mean, what do you make of that, right? Who knows? There are people who think it's total expenditure. And then there are people who think timing matters. Mm-hmm. And if you can just convince yourself one of them's true, yeah. that's it. If it were me, shower, let my body calm down, Distract myself with something, let the hunger come, have whatever feels appropriate based on how much you ate at dinner or not, and go to bed, not overthink it. That's what I would. Protein and carb mix. Yeah. If I had to schedule me, I'd have smoothies with peanut butter and protein powder on Mm. all of my easy days. And then I would have, I would force myself to have legitimate fuel on my hard days. That'd be good enough for me. I concur. This might take me another hour before i really want something a legitimate meal after my hard days for me it always right i think we differ there yeah but after my recovery runs i'll want it right away the hard ones are what maybe push it off for me but um all right i think that's it i think we got two q a's in bracken it just is what it is i don't make the rules i do make the rules neither do i (laughs) it's just what are you gonna do um anything you want to add anything that you know yeah i want to thank the running public okay I got a lot of support this weekend. And do you know what you you and Lisa, I feel like conspired to give me a wake up call on online interactions and communication, all of that stuff. So I did my very best this weekend to get back to every single person who oh. messaged and see the comments online. And it was delightful. There's so many people who just had a lot of nice things to say. And it's nice to just know that people out there care. Mm-hmm. Not They don't care about, I mean, some do, but they don't care if I take first or second or third. The overriding comment was, it was so good to see you out there and healthy again. Mm. Like That meant something. Because you don't want your self-worth to be tied to first place or second or third or whatever, because you can't usually control that. I was very fortunate to wind up there. Yeah. And I love it. Like It stoked my ego. But it does, it does shouldn't change who I am. And it was nice that the vast majority of people also didn't care. They were just yeah. happy that I was able to do it again. And they were not shy about reaching out. So thank you all for the support. Yeah, I think between, you know, me and your wife fluffing you up for a two-hour episode that dropped Friday and then <sighs> and then a good race and support over the weekend, you had yourself, uh, what is it, VH1's best week ever? Maybe somewhere in there. Yeah. Or what is it? Comedy Central's best week ever? I don't know. What station was. was that? VH1? I forget. Whatever Anyways. it is. I have Lisa totally tricked. <laughs> Listen to her. She is unnaturally supportive of me. Uh, I've got it made over here, Kirk. Sounds like you both do. Well, congratulations, Bracken. It was fun watching that secondhand. I felt like I won a little bit of something this weekend. When I'm kind of, you know, been in my training doldrums, you just might have spurred a little life in me too. So I hit a progression run today, slowly ramping back up. Look at that. Yeah. Oh, how the 
tables have turned. You know what the crazy thing is? I'm ready to go. Yeah, buddy. So I'm going to wait another day or two, but I'm ready to churn and burn here, Kirk. Sweet, dude. I'm ready too. Nice. Took 10 days off and I could tell sitting around drinking my coffee this morning, I'm like, I need to move. I need to move. So I went on ramp. But um, all right. We got a good one. We are talking, and please, I hope this doesn't go through, to my alma mater's head track and cross country coach for our upcoming um, uh, Friday episode, which I'm very much looking forward to. Haven't recorded it yet, but looking forward to that coming up. Who we both have a connection to. John DeWitt. Oh, I mean, he coached at Central as well, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, he might have. I don't know. We'll find out all of that on Friday. You have to wait and listen, folks. (laughs) 